You're listening to the Recoveredish Podcast. I'm your host, licensed therapist, Amanda E. White. Hi, I'm so excited you're here. I'm so excited to chat with you. And my intention of this podcast is for it to really be a lot of chats, a lot of nuance, a lot of exploring context um, so that we can understand our mental health better. And my hope and intention too is as I explore different things about myself personally or professionally, it will give you words to understand your own experience and at the very least, hopefully make you feel a little bit less alone. So I think the best place to start in this first podcast is to kind of give you context about my life and my story. Some of you all might be familiar with it if you follow me on Instagram or if you've listened to other podcasts that I've been on or even my practices podcast, the Therapy for Women podcast. But I wanted to go into more detail. I think there is something really unique about um, when you just kind of monologue about yourself without someone asking you questions. You can kind of dig deeper into certain topics and um, see things from a different perspective. So really where my story starts, like I said, I'm a licensed therapist. Um, I've been doing that for about nine years now, and I'm also in recovery, and I've been in recovery for a decade now. And um, You know, like a lot of people, my mental health struggles showed up when I was little. I remember, um, you know, being young and thinking that I didn't fit in a lot. I moved a lot growing up. I went to two different elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. And I was definitely someone when I was young who wanted friends, who desperately wanted to fit in. I think a lot about how as a millennial, there's really big differences between being a millennial and and watching younger generations than us and how much we valued fitting in at all costs and other generations don't, which is so fascinating. I feel like everything these days is about being unique and developing your personal brand. Anyway, this podcast will also have lots of – random sidetracks where I comment on something else. So just know that. But anyway, I was the typical millennial, I think, that was just dying to fit in when I was young and really struggled with that. And that ended up creating issues for me where I ended up engaging and developing an eating disorder. And for me, that really looked like bulimia. I remember having thoughts of going back, you know, really young and not liking my body, not liking how I looked. And the research really does show that it's crazy. A lot of, I don't know what the statistics are off the top of my head, but girls that are really young, a lot of times don't feel good about their bodies, go on diets when they're young. And that's really common. Um, So I don't think my experience was unique in that way. And I also was in a very like – I have a lot of thin privilege. I was in a very straight-sized body. But I think when you're growing up and young, you just – you know, especially as a millennial, you saw what was on fashion magazines. You saw what was, you know, showed to you on TV and you just wanted to be this perfect version of yourself. And I used to really think growing up 
if I could become perfect, I wouldn't feel pain. I would be, you know, liked. I would have friends. I, um, you know, would have a boyfriend. I would have a love interest. I would have all these things if I were just perfect enough. And I think a lot of us can fall into that that pattern. And um, that pattern led me to be try to be perfect and perfect my body at all costs. And thinking that if I were thin enough, I wouldn't feel pain and I would find love and it would cure all my problems. And when you look at diet culture from a macro perspective, that is what diet culture promises us. It promises us that if we have this body, if we look like this person, if we have skin like that person, that we won't have any problems. And that's what is sold to us through marketing and messaging. And um, that was a really big, once I started to learn about diet culture, um, as I was getting into recovery from my eating disorder, that totally changed my view about everything. But obviously, you know, in middle school, high school, that didn't happen. Um, So I ended up, I had bulimia. Um, It was something that I had so much shame about and I knew that it was an issue. You know, I think a lot of people don't recognize their eating disorder as a problem because they, um, you know, it's, it's looks like them dieting. It looks like them exercising. They think, well, this looks just like what other people are doing. I knew people weren't sticking their fingers down their throat five plus times a day. And that was something that I had so much shame about. It felt really dirty. It felt really gross. Um, my parents did find out and I went to therapy when I, you know, I started therapy, I think when I was 14. But um, yeah, I pretty much lied to every therapist I went to. I think as a teen, it's really, really hard to find good therapy and find a therapist that you relate to. But I was still so stuck in this idea of being perfect I lied a lot and I would try to pretend like I was doing much better than I was. Um, I didn't really take any of the tools or the suggestions, even though I said I was, um, because I I think on some level I was so afraid of really trying and failing that um, I I would was felt more in control just saying I was getting better. And I had a lot of issues with the perception of me not being perfect, not being good enough, not winning or thriving in therapy. So, so yeah, so I saw I saw a couple different therapists. They didn't really help that much because I wasn't taking their suggestions. Um and my eating disorder just kept progressing and it it was something that people also kind of told me you may just grow out of it. I had therapists tell me that. Um which really helped me rationalize it. Um, But looking back now, it is so clear how unmanageable it was and how much of like an addiction it was. I truly at the time felt like a food addict with the way that I would binge and I would purge and I would feel really out of control and I would create all sorts of rituals for myself, promising myself I wasn't going to do it anymore um, and nothing ever really worked or helped, but I was, I really was convinced that when I went to college, that would all be fine and that would be good. 
Meanwhile, at the same time, um, like a lot of people in high school, I started drinking. And um, for me, drinking really felt like friends in a bottle where my eating disorder was shameful. I wanted to hide it. Alcohol felt like something that everyone was doing and that I could do to fit in. And it really calmed all of my social anxiety, my fear, my thoughts about not fitting in, my insecurities. And it just felt like this magic elixir, right? Um, For popularity, for being a better version of myself. And I continued drinking throughout high school. Um, I don't think it was ever really a problem in high school. I didn't drink a ton. I didn't have a ton of access to it. I was also still very invested in be, you know, the certain perception of myself that I was perfect. I was this good girl. I was a people pleaser, a parent pleaser, you name it. So the idea of drinking really kind of went against that, which I think kind of kept it in check throughout high school. Um, and then when I get to, got to college, it was kind of like I just – everything kind of fell apart. I started drinking a lot more as much as I wanted. Um, my eating disorder did not get better. It got worse with having access to, you know, the cafeteria and the fact that you're on like – I you know, I went to um, – a school where I was on like a meal plan and you had access to the cafeteria and all of that. Um, the first year of of college, I kind of kept it together, but soon after that, things started spiraling. Um, I was in a relationship where my boyfriend cheated on me sophomore year. And after that, things just really kind of got out of control. I became really, really depressed. I was drinking a lot more engaging in my eating disorder. And i it's really crazy to think about all of the crazy ways that I tried to cure my eating disorder through eating. I was really, really convinced, and I think a lot of us can be convinced, that if we just eat the right way or we don't eat certain foods, that we will cure our eating disorder. And in my experience in recovery, it has been unlearning all of that and doing the opposite trying to cure your eating disorder by a certain diet or eating in a certain way is very, very akin to trying to stop drinking by doing drugs. They are like the same thing. It's just a different way of trying to control it. But I didn't know that at the time. And I um, really just started to do all these crazy diets. I don't know if any of you all remember the raw food diet. I mean, I literally bought into that so hard. I read the books. I tried to convince my boyfriend to do it at the time, which is ridiculous thinking about. I bought um, a dehydrator. I don't know if you know what that is, but it is this stereo looking black box that only heats up to, I forget what the temperature is. 125 degrees or something like that. Let me, whatever raw food temperature was. Okay. It hasn't been heated over 104 to 118 degrees. So yeah, it like heats things up to just that. So you, I would make like, well, the funny thing is I never even used it. I bought this and I literally did not use it once, but I thought that I would make dehydrated fruit or there were, there were these weird recipes in the books about, um, you know, like crackers that you could make with them or like chocolate brownies or whatever. 
Um, so I really had high hopes for that in my dorm room. Keep in mind too, I never used it once. Um, I don't know if any of you all watched that Netflix show a couple years ago with Samara. Um, she was like a juice um, cleansing person. She had a raw food. Um, she had a raw food restaurant in New York City. I was obsessed with that place. I didn't live in New York. I went to school in Virginia. But I would like stalk their website. I had her book. I was very, very much convinced if I could just be raw vegan, all of my food issues would go away. So I tried that for a few months and it did not work. And then I went on another ridiculous cleanse um, that was like – it was called like a raw food type diet, but it wasn't totally raw, which makes no sense thinking back about it. It was like, it was all about food combining. I don't know if you all remember food combining, right? Where you couldn't eat, you could only eat fruit on an empty stomach. You could only eat like fruit, vegetables, and meats together. I think like dairy was its own compartment or own category and um, protein was its own category. Carbs were its own category but I don't think you were really allowed to eat carbs. I think that was like potatoes were probably the only carb you were allowed to eat. All I know is like this diet had me doing tons of green juice and you were allowed to have chocolate and you were allowed to have like I think eggs or like fish, which obviously I didn't cook in my dorm room and stuff. So I don't really know what I when I ate that. But um Yeah, and like sweet potatoes, I do remember you were allowed to eat cooked. I don't know. It was a really strange diet. I think her name was Natalia or something like that, if anyone knows what I'm talking about. Crazy. Anyway, did all of that. Pretty wild. Um, I remember a big snack. And she was very into dark chocolate. I would eat like the darkest chocolate and, and raw, raw cheese. She was really into raw dairy. And I would go to like the Whole Foods or the, I don't even, you know, like the natural store and I would spend so much money on like raw cheese and I would get super drunk and I would come back to my room and I would eat like raw cheese and like dark chocolate and like carrots dipped in mustard. I kid you not. These were like when I was on the plan, my like snacks. But also most of the time when I got drunk, I would go off the plan and eat pizza And then get really mad at myself and start all over again. I don't know if anyone relates to this. This is pretty niche content, niche eating disorder content. But I mean, I think another really – the way that my alcohol and my eating disorder really collided is on this diet, I was told that I could drink alcohol, which is always suspicious if you think about it. Like why is – you know? a potato or rice toxic, but alcohol isn't. But anyway, I was told that whiskey was the cleanest liquor that you could drink. I couldn't drink beer. I couldn't drink wine, you know, sugar, carbs, but apparently I could drink whiskey. But the only things that I was allowed to drink with it as like a chaser was lemon juice, lime juice, green juice, or coconut water. But I couldn't have packaged coconut water. And this was like in 2010. So this was before the coconut water craze even happened. So I couldn't even – it was like before Vita Coco existed. So instead, um, 
I would buy young Thai coconuts from Whole Foods. I had no way of opening them. So I would, I kid you not, throw them against the wall. Like, you know, those cinder block walls in dorm rooms. I would throw it against the wall to try to crack it open. And then I would pour out the coconut water into like a container and I would drink whiskey and I would chase it with coconut water, which is just as disgusting as it sounds. It was horrible. So that was pretty unmanageable, if you can imagine. And it just, I kept doing all these crazy diets, um, convinced if I found the right one, it would work. Drinking continued to escalate. And it started really impacting not just, you know, my relationships with friends, but also my schoolwork and stuff like that too. And by the time junior year came around, I was really depressed and I was suicidal to the point where I had a plan. I was thinking about it a lot because I was getting into these huge, huge fights with my friends when I would get incredibly blacked out. I was such a binge blackout drinker. And I also at this point started abusing Adderall. And I remember the first time I tried Adderall, the reason that I really became obsessed with it sophomore year was because it killed my appetite. And it literally felt like this is the solution to all my problems. And I really, really believe that one thing that people – don't understand about addiction is that when you have that like emotional hook point that you fall in love with that substance or that behavior where it feels like this is what my life has been missing, this is the solution to my problems, that's really what takes it from just being a casual thing to something that is developing into an addiction for the person. So if I look back, when the first time I made myself sick, the first time I was able to purge successfully, I really had the moment of, oh my God, this is the solution to eating too much. This is the solution to being uncomfortable, eating more than I should, eating quote unquote bad foods, and then I can get rid of it. It's like I can stop time or rewind time and I became obsessed with that idea. So I became addicted to it. You heard me talk about alcohol. Alcohol became the thing that was missing from my life. It was friends in a bottle. You know, I couldn't get rid of my social anxiety or feel more comfortable around people or be perfect enough, but I could make those fears go away. I could be a more outgoing, fun version of myself with alcohol. And then Adderall was – this cures – I mean, this is even better, right, than purging. This cures my – hunger. I don't have to be hungry on it. But all of those things in their own way had major side effects that impacted me. I mean, the bulimia obviously hurt my teeth. It uh, made my blood sugar be really crazy. Bulimia really can impact your cognitive thinking, your ability to think straight, um, especially if you are doing it you know, many, many times a day at my worst in college, I was binging and purging like 10 times a day. It took up tons of time. It was super addictive. 
once I started purging, I couldn't stop. Alcohol, right? I would then get blacked out. I would do and say things I didn't mean I didn't want to do. I would be a terrible friend. I put myself and other people in really risky situations. I had terrible hangovers. There are all these consequences to it that um, you don't think about when you just feel like this is the solution. And then with Adderall, it completely messed up my sleeping. It was extremely difficult for me to sleep. Um, The other thing about Adderall is if you stay up all night taking it to write a paper or something, your brain stops working. And I would – I mean, I have memories of staying up in the library all night writing papers and being sure I had enough time to do it. But you get so distracted and you'll go down a rabbit hole of different things. I mean, I remember one night when I was on Adderall, I was supposed to study or write a paper or something. And I ended up searching veganism online, which I was also a vegetarian, a vegan, different things at different points in my life. And I literally went on this whole deep dive into, I kid you not, I became obsessed with I have to become a vegan and that I need to figure out what to do with like the fact that I have a car that has leather seats in it. And I have, you know, shoes that are made of leather. And I literally spent the entire night spiraling trying to figure out how to become a vegan. I got super into Alicia Silverstone at the time. This is another tangent. If you guys remember her, I think she had the kind diet. I got very into that. But all these diets, right, it it was just, again, it was the promise that I could look like her, that I could feel as she said that she felt. If I gave up, you know, all animal products and also – lived a vegan lifestyle. So anyway, tangent aside, right? Adderall really messed up my sleep. It messed up. It wasn't actually – you think it makes you really productive, but you can go down all these rabbit holes and not be productive. And I remember I stayed up all night writing a paper. And at the end of it, I couldn't even finish – like I didn't even finish the paper that I stayed up writing. When I look back, it's really – I mean, my grades were not good, obviously, in college, but it's really a miracle that I graduated. And a lot of this stuff, right, so I would mix all of this together. I would be binging and purging, so my stomach would be empty. Then I would um, drink alcohol. I would do Adderall, and it would just – it was a recipe for really intense blackouts. Um, And when I was in those – I would get into really big fights with my friends. I would do and say things that I didn't mean. I drove drunk. I became extremely defensive. Anytime anyone tried to talk to me about anything, I had such low self-esteem. I was in such a fragile state. I couldn't even have a conversation with them and I just would become extremely defensive about everything. I also had so much shame around. I would eat my roommate's food. And that was a huge thing that I felt so much shame about that I could not stop doing. No matter what I promised myself, it was this – it was like the fact that it was forbidden, that I wasn't supposed to. It was just this like insane um, thing that I couldn't stop doing that created a lot of chaos. So all that to say, it's – that's how I – after a really, really big fight, I also, um, though I was sober when I got into a, um, a car crash and I totaled my car, 
I had been doing Adderall. I hadn't slept. I had been binging and purging. I had a head-on collision with a mail truck. I was only going like 25 miles an hour. But a mail truck is really, really heavy, and it will total your car, FYI. So things like that was just – it was so clear how unmanageable my life was. By the time I graduated, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. It was still in and out of therapy, um, really addicted to Adderall. Like I said, I had found a psychiatrist who I essentially lied to and got him to prescribe me it. And by the time I graduated, I knew that my, you know, I knew that Adderall was an issue. I knew I did not have ADHD and that I was lying about that. So I stopped doing that cold turkey. But I kept drinking and I kept engaging in my eating disorder. I didn't think that I had a problem with drinking. I thought it was just my eating disorder. And at that time, I finally found a therapist who I really connected with for the first time in my life. She was open about sharing that she was in recovery. And for the first time, I felt like I could be honest and um, like – really open up and not be afraid of being judged. And she completely changed my life. And I was able to start sharing things and working on um, self-esteem, working on forgiving myself for everything that I did during college and slowly started clawing my way out of my eating disorder and, and into recovery. And it took about a year and a half of intense therapy. I was in therapy one or two times a week. I also was in group therapy, which was so powerful for me. Um, And it it was a lot of two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, you know, four steps back. It was a lot of really slow incremental progress that I couldn't even really identify or see myself. So after about a year and a half in therapy, I did start getting to the point where I was in recovery from my eating disorder. I was able to stop purging. I was able to stop binging. Um, and it was amazing. And what was so interesting though is that then my alcohol started becoming a lot more noticeable of an issue for me. I really had this idea that I deserved to have fun. My life was you know, I didn't have a good college experience because I was such a disaster during college. So I really believed that I deserved to go out and have fun and be crazy at the bars. And, you know, now that I wasn't um, doing Adderall as much, it was less likely for me to black out. But what I didn't know at the time that I know now is once your brain gets used to blackouts, it is like – it's a very common thing that starts to happen more. There's a pathway in your brain that's like a habit, a groove that gets much, much more worn down that makes it so much easier for you to continue to black out. So I, you know, kept drinking. I thought I deserved to have fun. I kept blacking out. I started, you know, even though it wasn't as wild and terrible as it was in college, I still was not a good friend did not show up the way I wanted to. And it was really, really confronting because I was doing all this work in therapy to try to rebuild my self-esteem and my confidence and, you know, work on feeling good about myself. And it felt like 
whenever I drank, this switch was flipped and I had no control over what I did or I said when I was drunk. So it was really hard for me to reconcile those two sides of myself. And it's really hard to build self-esteem when you can't rely or trust yourself to say you're not going to do something. And this is something that I am just such a big believer in. And maybe I'll do a – if you all want, you can let me know if if you want me to hear a whole podcast episode on this. But I am such a big believer in the importance of self-trust because I spent so many years just totally disregarding my word to myself. I would just say every day, tomorrow will be different. Tomorrow will be different. I'm never going to drink again. This is the last time I'm ever drinking again. I'm never throwing up again. I'm never doing this again. And because I said it so much, my word to myself or other people became really meaningless. And the only way to really build self-esteem and self-worth is to be able to trust yourself and trust your word. So I started to realize that I didn't know if I could – I mean, I don't think this was conscious yet, but I started to feel like I don't know how I'm going to ever feel good about myself because I keep doing these things over and over again. And I felt like there was something wrong with me. I was a bad person. It didn't really occur to me that maybe alcohol was what was not good for me. So at this time too, I went back to school to become a therapist. I was in an internship. Um actually working with alcoholics and um, people with drug addiction issues and stuff like that. Let me re-say that again. I was actually in an internship at that time where I was working with um, people who used drugs and alcohol who were trying to get sober. And I was so in denial about my own issues with alcohol that I worked there and I felt very much like I understood them because – of how I kind of described my eating disorder and even like my Adderall use. I really thought that I relate to these people. I'm an addict too, but I didn't think that I had a problem with alcohol. It was just such a huge blind spot for me. And I remember I was in group therapy. So I like, right, I was a clinician in the sense I was an intern. Um, So I would shadow a lot and Then I was also in my own therapy still, and I started to realize that maybe my alcohol was contributing negatively to how I was feeling. And my therapist said, well, why don't you take a 30-day break and see how that goes? And I was very determined to prove her wrong, right, that I didn't have a problem with alcohol and and to myself. And I thought that I would prove that by doing this break. Well, I thought that it wasn't a fair time for the break because it was 4th of July and then my birthday um, and I had like friends coming to visit one of the weekends or something. So I chopped off like the first week and the last week and I didn't drink for I think like two and a half weeks, but I also didn't go out or do anything either. I just kind of was home alone living with my parents at the time. And I thought that that had proved it. I told my therapist that I did it even though I lied and I chopped off part of it um, to justify it to myself. It's amazing what you can justify when you're 
you know, in your addiction or in your, um, you know, mental health issues. So I kept drinking. And meanwhile, I was helping people in recovery. I was in therapy myself. I did have friends who were also in recovery because I was in therapy, because I had been in that group therapy. I A lot of the people in that group were also in recovery from addiction or alcohol. And my last drink ended up being um, Labor Day. And I had the most – you know, I went out so hard that night. I drove drunk. Thankfully, I was okay. And I was also a yoga teacher at the time. And I woke up at 6 a.m. to teach yoga. And I went, but I was completely drunk. I don't remember teaching yoga. I didn't come to until like a few hours after. And um, I also had a very big relapse in my eating disorder. And what was so interesting, right, is I think when you look back, you can realize that, or I can realize, there were there were many moments that were rock bottom. That was also something I was very obsessed with, especially in my eating disorder. I used to be like, if I just hit rock bottom hard enough, then I will be done. You know, I almost need to punish myself. How many more times a day can I throw up? How much more pain can I cause myself? How much can I make my throat bleed and, you know, my head feel like it's going to explode that I can punish myself into submission? which does not work, by the way. You cannot punish yourself into submission. You cannot punish yourself into changing. Um, so, so yeah, I was very obsessed with the idea of a rock bottom. And I think that's what's interesting is this rock bottom with my drinking, well, yes, like to a lot of people, it would probably be their rock bottom because teaching yoga totally drunk is pretty ridiculous. But I had had much much lower rock bottoms, especially in college, especially when my eating disorder was more intense and when I was um, doing Adderall and stuff like that. But that was the time that I listened. That was the time where I was able to see really clearly two paths in front of me, one where I kept drinking, I kept doing the same thing. Um, And I I saw that path of, I don't know how I'm going to be a therapist. I don't know how I'm going to help other people if I continue down that path. And the other path was, you know, dealing with this and quitting drinking. And I didn't know if I would never drink again. I didn't really know what that looked like. But I knew people who went to 12-step meetings and the program worked for them. And that's what I did. And I went to my first meeting that night. And I just kept going. I wasn't sure if I was an alcoholic. I didn't even really like that word. I didn't fully relate to it. But I did know based on my like drug use and my eating disorder that I definitely was an addict. And if I was going to stop drinking, then you know maybe I didn't love the word alcoholic, but I knew that I probably belonged there. And um, that's that was, you know – the beginning of the journey of I'd already done a lot of work on myself. I'd actually gone through a 12-step program for my eating disorder, which was, you know, super, super life transforming. So this felt like a continuation of that. And I would often go to the meetings and just have the context that, yeah, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic, but I know I have other issues. 
And um, I really took that year to to really work on myself and um, start to learn and grow. And it was like a big final piece that was missing in my life. And the really interesting thing is that when I actually told my parents that I was going to stop drinking, they did not support this decision. And I think that goes to show you just how differently people think of alcohol versus, you know, other issues. My parents' concern was that I wouldn't have friends. I would isolate myself. Maybe I was being dramatic. You know, I think they had kind of equated it to these dramatic um, diets I had done that were a part of my eating disorder. And they were like, maybe you shouldn't set yourself up for failure. Maybe you should just cut back a little bit on drinking. But I knew for myself how out of control I felt when I drank. I had been trying to moderate and cut back and drink like a reasonable person for a long time for, you know, specifically for those like two years when I was in therapy and it didn't work. So I didn't know if I was never going to drink again, but I did know that I needed to take a significant period of time and I needed to just take it one day at a time. And that's what I did. And I was so scared, like my parents were, that my life was over. And what actually happened was I found so many amazing connections and people in my life, people that are still in my life, because I was able to be honest about myself and my struggles and show up vulnerably and authentically in relationships for one of the first times. And it was amazing being able to not have to pretend like I had it together or pretend like I wasn't anxious when I was talking to people. And that completely changed my life. So I think this is what's interesting, right? This is this is the before. This is I I got into recovery. I'm recovered. And this is normally where the story ends, where you hear about people's struggles in life. And my intention of this podcast is that getting into recovery is actually where this podcast begins. This is the beginning of the story, not the end, because I'm really interested in exploring the messiness of what it's like to be in recovery from something long-term and how we can go through ups and downs and different phases in our life and um, see the different challenges that come from all of that. You know, I used to be so obsessed with just being recovered, being done. I could check this off my list and I could never struggle again. And the older I get, the more I realize that life is super nuanced and we're never done. We're never just recovered or finished with something there are always more layers to pull back and to look at. And I feel especially passionate about talking about this right now because, um, as some of you know, I just had a baby. And I think there is – it is such a major life change that you go through. It really, really kicked my butt on the mental health front. And I have such like a renewed passion for talking about this nuance and talking about how Life is hard. Life is going to throw things at you that you don't expect. And just because you've moved through something doesn't mean it's not going to be a new layer for you to explore. Doesn't mean 
if you've worked through your anxiety that you're just done ever feeling anxious. It's something that you're always going to be working on and learning about and exploring, and it's going to come up in different contexts as you change and your life changes. And I think what's what's so interesting is I used to think, you know, when I was done, when I had just finished my mental health journey, I would just have my shit together and I would know exactly who I was and I would have all these routines and I would know how I dress and I would know what I cared about and I would, you know, have these very structured I, – I had these very structured ideas of what I would be when I figured life out. And I think, right, as when we're growing up, we look at adults and we think they have life figured out. And then you grow up and become an adult and you realize no one has life figured out and we're all just figuring it out as we go. Um, there's nothing more that will make you feel that way than being a parent when you have a baby and you're like, I am in charge of this human who gave me the right to set the rules and be in charge, right? It's so weird. So I think that's part of what I'm interested in exploring. And I think, you know, I think the process of also watching children grow up is so interesting in watching how, you know, as a parent, you think, okay, well, I survived the newborn phase, but then there's a new phase you have to figure out. There's a new routine that your baby has to be on. There's a new challenge that you're going to have to deal with. And that's just a really small example, I think, of what our lives are, is there's always a new challenge, a new thing to deal with. And it doesn't mean that we're not in recovery from something. It doesn't mean that we're unwell or anything or the work we did wasn't very valid. It's just that life becomes more complicated. And I, you know, you, to use another kid example, right? Like you learn how to do one thing and then life changes. And as kids grow up, there are less concrete answers. When your kid is young, you know that you have to feed them and change them and have them sleep. And it's, it's hard, but it's simple. And as life happens, a lot of times it gets more complicated. And that complication is not really easy to explore on social media. So I'm really excited to explore it with you here and share more about my journey. I'm going to have episodes on, um, you know, my journey postpartum, my journey pregnancy. I'm going to bring on some of my friends and talk to them, some really incredible people who you probably already know and follow. Um, to learn more about different topics and people that have helped me see the world differently and helped me in my mental health journey. And I'm really excited for this to kind of be like a very collaborative podcast. I really want to know what you all want to hear about, what topics are important to you, what you're curious about. This is going to be a place where I am not going to pretend to have all the answers I have ideas. I have suggestions based on my personal and professional experience. Um, I have things that I believe in. But again, I think that everyone is unique and going through different things and the context of things matter. So really like listen to what I say, take what works, discard the rest. Um, and I'm really excited to be on this journey with you. See you next week. Thanks for listening. To suggest an episode topic or support my work, visit amandaewhite.com. If you're interested in getting therapy from my practice, visit therapyforwomencenter.com. We're based in Philadelphia, but we have therapists serving 27 states across the country. 